it's important to realize that there was never a single point in time when all of the various religious authorities in the ancient world got together and decided which books should be included in the Bible and which ones should not. Instead, the contents of the Bible grew slowly over time, with various books being put in and others being taken out, and with different religious authorities making different decisions in this regard. So, although I've been emphasizing throughout this series that Jews and Christians share most of the Old Testament in common, there are actually a few exceptions that I would now like to focus on. So far, we've looked at the three main sections of the Jewish Tanakh, equaling 24 books in total. As I've mentioned previously, the Protestant Old Testament consists of these exact same 24 books, simply reordered and divided into 39 books. However, we're now going to consider the versions of the Old Testament used by the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Ethiopian Church. All three of these Bibles contain the 39 core books of the Old Testament, but they also each contain some extra books. Catholics have seven extra books, for a total of 46. The extra books are Tobit, Judith, Baruch, Sirach, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, and the Wisdom of Solomon. According to Catholics, these books are called the Deuterocanonicals, meaning Second Canon, whereas according to Protestants, they are called the Apocrypha, meaning obscure or uncertain. In addition to these seven books, the Catholic Old Testament also includes additions to both Esther and Daniel. The Eastern Orthodox Old Testament also includes these same seven extra books. However, it also includes three more, for a total of 49. These are 1st Esdras, 2nd Esdras, and 3rd Maccabees. It too includes the additions to Esther and Daniel, as well as one extra psalm, and an addition to Chronicles known as the Prayer of Manasseh. Finally, the Eastern Orthodox Old Testament also includes a 50th book, 4th Maccabees, but it is listed as an appendix and not one of the core 49. Then there is the Ethiopian Old Testament, which is the largest of them all. First of all, it divides Proverbs into two books, and hence the core part has 40 books, not 39. It also includes everything we've mentioned so far, except... For the three Maccabees, so that brings us to 47. But it also includes seven unique books found only in the Ethiopian Bible, bringing its grand total to 54. Those books are 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabean, which are different from 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabees, Jubilees, Enoch, 4th Baruch, and Josephon. Okay, so now let's look at each of these extra books one by one. To do so, I'm going to bring up my timeline, which I used in the previous two episodes. You'll notice that, generally speaking, the Torah and the prophets represent the older books, whereas the writings tend to be the books that were written later. This is why I prefer the Jewish ordering. It's not just because I'm Jewish, it's because the Jewish ordering makes the evolution of the Bible more clear. The Torah was clearly thought to be the most important part, followed by the prophets. Most of the writings, though, were written much later, and they are far more literary 
Hence, it makes more sense to include them at the end rather than to sprinkle them throughout. What we're about to discover is that the apocryphal or deuterocanonical books represent a second set of writings that were written even later. So in order to make room for their placement, we need to expand our timeline to include the next three periods in Jewish history, the Hasmonean period, the Herodian period, and the post-Temple period. The Hasmonean period began in 167 BCE, when a family of Jewish priests known as the Maccabees, or more formally, the Hasmoneans, managed to win independence for Judea. Their rule continued until 37 BCE, when the throne passed to Herod the Great. By that point, Judea was a client state of Rome, but it did still retain a certain degree of autonomy. However, in 70 CE, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem as well as the Second Temple, and ushered in the final period on this timeline, which I have named the post-temple period. Okay, so now that our timeline is set up, let's start with the book of Tobit. Tobit is a collection of several stories, set shortly after the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They center around a couple named Tobit and Anna, and their son Tobias, who ends up marrying a woman named Sarah. However, it also prominently features an angel named Raphael, and a demon named Asmodeus. This already makes the book of Tobit quite a bit different from the books that made it into the Hebrew Bible. It might surprise you to learn that angels are rarely mentioned by name in the Hebrew Bible, and demons do not appear at all. In fact, the only book in the entire Hebrew Bible to mention an angel by name is the book of Daniel. As I mentioned in the last episode, Daniel was written late in the Greek period. Well, Tobit was written by an anonymous author around the same time. This is why they have several features in common, such as the inclusion of spiritual beings with names. By this point, Judaism had been strongly influenced by Zoroastrianism, the main religion in Persia. This is why, from this point forward, we find a much more detailed spiritual world within Jewish literature. For example, more angels and demons. The next book is Judith. Judith, like Esther, is best thought of as being a work of historical fiction. In this case, it is set during the time when the Babylonians were conquering Judah. The story revolves around a woman named Judith, who uses her wit to sneak into the enemy's camp and behead a general named Holofernes. However, it is likely that the story is actually an allegory about the beheading of a much later enemy, a Seleucid general named Nicanor, who was killed by the Maccabees. The evidence for this interpretation is based on the fact that the military terminology, political institutions, and geographical boundaries mentioned in the book all match those of the Hasmonean period, indicating that this was when the book was written. Next up is The Wisdom of Sirach, a book that is kind of like Proverbs and is sometimes called Ecclesiasticus. Unlike Tobit, Judith, and so many other books, we actually know the name of the person who wrote this one. His name was Joshua ben Sirach, or Jesus ben Sirach, hence the title Sirach. 
we also know exactly when he wrote it, because he mentions the name of the high priest at the time, Simon II. This puts it right at the end of the Greek period, just before the Hasmonean takeover. We also know that a prologue was added to the book several decades later by his grandson, and this prologue is particularly helpful in understanding how and when the Jewish canon was formed, because it contains the earliest mention of the tripartite division of the Tanakh. Sirach chapter 1 verse 1 reads, Many great teachings have been given to us through the law and the prophets and the others that followed them. Moving on, let's now consider the book of Baruch. According to the book of Jeremiah, Baruch was the prophet Jeremiah's scribe. That would mean that he lived around the time of the Babylonian exile. However, due to the language used in the book, it is unlikely that Baruch actually wrote Baruch. As is often the case, it is more likely that a later anonymous writer simply wrote the book as if it was written by Baruch. And although the book deals with the loss of the temple due to the Babylonians, it is likely that what it is really talking about is the loss of the temple that occurred just prior to the Maccabean Revolt. This would place its composition around the same time as Judith. Next is the Book of Wisdom, also known as the Wisdom of Solomon, another Proverbs-like book that was supposedly written by King Solomon, but almost certainly was written much later, probably around the same time as Baruch. Based on an analysis of the grammar and vocabulary used, Baruch and Wisdom are thought to be the two earliest books on this chart to have been originally written in Greek. This is in contrast to Tobit and Sirach and perhaps Judith, which were originally written in Hebrew and only later translated to Greek. We know this partly because Hebrew fragments of both Tobit and Sirach were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. The final two books in the Apocrypha are 1st and 2nd Maccabees. However, please note that these two books are not a part one and part two. Instead, they are two different versions of the same events, written by two different authors. 1st Maccabees was originally written in Hebrew by someone living in Judea, whereas 2nd Maccabees was written in Greek by someone living in Alexandria, Egypt. Both were written around 100 BCE. We do not know the name of either author. However, 2nd Maccabees is supposedly a condensed version of a now lost five-book series about the Maccabees, written by a man named Jason of Cyrene. The Maccabees are, of course, associated with the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. However, please note that the miracle of the oil story is actually not mentioned in either 1st or 2nd Maccabees. The earliest mention of that part of the Hanukkah story is actually in the Talmud. Anyway, if you want to learn more about the Maccabees and the Hasmonean period from a historical point of view, I'd recommend watching the video on this channel where we go through their family tree. I'll link to that in the description. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, the Apocrypha also includes several additions to Esther and Daniel. In other words, the Greek versions of those two books are longer than the original 
Hebrew versions because at some point someone added some bonus material, probably written in Greek from the start, and added around 100 BCE. In the case of Esther, the additions are sprinkled throughout and end up changing the tone of the entire work from that of a comedy to that of a more serious tale. In contrast, the additions to Daniel consist of three large chunks. The prayer of Azariah, which is part of the fiery furnace story. Susanna and the elders, a story about two creepy old men sexually harassing a woman. And Bell and the dragon, which is actually two stories. One about corrupt priests and one about Daniel slaying a dragon. So that takes care of all the Catholic deuterocanonical books called the Apocrypha by Protestants. However, as I mentioned, the Eastern Orthodox and Ethiopian Bibles include several more books. Let's start with 1st and 2nd Esdras. Again, these are not a part one and part two, but rather two totally different books by two totally different authors. The first thing you need to know is that Esdras is simply the Greek version of the name Ezra. And we already have a book of Ezra, as well as a book of Nehemiah, which in the original Jewish Bible was considered to be a part of the book of Ezra. First, Esdras is basically a Greek version of the original book of Ezra, with some changes. Written in the late Hasmonean or early Herodian period. Second Esdras, however, is something totally different. It was written in Latin after the rise of Christianity and falls into the category of apocalyptic literature. Next is 3rd and 4th Maccabees. 3rd Maccabees actually has nothing to do with the Maccabees. It's a story about Ptolemy IV's persecution of the Jews about 40 years prior to the rise of the Maccabees. It was written in Greek around the same time as 1st Esdras. 4th Maccabees is kind of a commentary on 2nd Maccabees. It too was written in Greek, but much later, around the same time as 2nd Esdras. That takes care of everything included in the Eastern Orthodox Bible, which leaves us with the books that are found only in the Ethiopian Bible. Let's start with the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabean. Although the name derives from the word Maccabee, these Ethiopian books are totally different from 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabees. For one thing, they are written in Ge'ez, which is the ancient language of Ethiopia. The first two do appear to be loosely based on the Maccabees, but with the names and locations in the story changed significantly. For example, the evil king in the Ethiopian version is a man named Sirut Saidan. Interestingly, coins of Antiochus IV, the villain in the original story, often included the city names Tyre and Sidon, which could be where the name Sirut Saidan comes from. Third Maccabean, however, has nothing to do with the Maccabees, and instead focuses on Bible characters such as Adam and David. All three of the Ethiopian Maccabees were likely written very late in the post-Temple period, almost as late as the fall of the Western Roman Empire. We then have Fourth Baruch, which is designated as such because there is also a Second Baruch and a Third Baruch, even though 
neither of them ended up being included in any Bible. Anyhow, 4th Baruch was likely written in Greek sometime in the post-Temple period. However, Josephon was written much later than anything we've seen so far. In fact, it was probably written in Italy well into the Middle Ages, even though it was written in Hebrew, and its name comes from the fact that it was said to have been written by Josephus. It's kind of a recap of Jewish history, but because it was written so late, I'm going to place it completely off the chart. In contrast, the Book of Jubilees, which was also originally written in Hebrew, was composed much earlier, likely around the same time as 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which is why fragments of it have been found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's kind of an alternative Book of Genesis, and in fact is sometimes called Leptogenesis, meaning the Lesser Genesis. It centers around the idea of the Jubilee Cycle, a concept from the Torah in which the land is given rest every seven years, and then after seven cycles of seven, there is a special Jubilee year. According to the Book of Jubilees, the exodus from Egypt occurred in the 2451st year after the creation of the world. 50 multiplied by 49 equals 2,450, which means that the exodus occurred at the start of the 50th set of 50 years, making it a jubilee of jubilees. I'll be returning to this calculation in September, when I plan to do a video on the Jewish calendar. Okay, last but not least is the Book of Enoch which, in my opinion, is the most interesting of all the apocryphal books. It takes its name from a minor Bible character named Enoch, who shows up on the genealogy between Adam and Noah. In Islam, this character is known as Idris. However, the Book of Enoch was obviously not written by Enoch. It was written during the Greek period, and one of the things that makes it so interesting is the fact that parts of it are likely older than Daniel. Daniel being the last book that made it into the Tanakh. So basically, every other apocryphal book except Enoch was written after Daniel, which makes Enoch special. On top of this, it is also the only apocryphal book that is referenced in the New Testament. In fact, it's referenced seven times in these verses. Finally, I should also point out that several Hebrew and Aramaic fragments of the Book of Enoch have been found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. However, the most important thing you need to know about the Book of Enoch is that it's actually five books, and that each book was likely written by a different author at a different time. There's the Book of Watchers, the Book of Parables, the Book of Astronomy, the Book of Dreams, and the Epistle of Enoch. The oldest section is the Book of Watchers. This is the part that was likely written in the Greek period, before the Book of Daniel, whereas the latest section is the Book of Parables, written during the post-Temple period. I'm going to focus on the Book of Watchers, because that's the part that tends to come up the most when people talk about the Book of Enoch. The whole thing...
thing is basically based on a few short verses in Genesis that go like this. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground, the sons of God saw they were fair, and they took wives for themselves. The Nephilim were on earth in those days, when the sons of God went into the daughters of men, who bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and the Lord was sorry that he made mankind. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created. Genesis 6, 1-7, New Revised Standard Version. What follows is the flood story. So it seems that these few somewhat puzzling verses that read more like pagan mythology than the rest of the Bible are given as the explanation for the flood. Well, according to the Book of Enoch, the phrase sons of God refers to a special group of angels called the Watchers, whose job was to watch over the newly created humans. The Book of Enoch basically fleshes out the Genesis account and describes how fallen angels end up having sex with human women resulting in a race of giants known as the Nephilim. As I mentioned earlier, the Tanakh doesn't really give much information about angels or fallen angels, but the book of Enoch does. It lists the names of many angelic beings, such as Samyaza, the leader of the Watchers, Azazel, the fallen angel who teaches humans to use metal and to make weapons, and Uriel, one of the good archangels who acts as Enoch's guide. So if the book of Enoch includes so much extra information, why then did it not make it into the Jewish Bible? To explain, I need to tell you a bit more about what was happening during the Greek period of Jewish history. In episode one, I put forward the idea that the ancient Israelites were originally two separate kingdoms with two separate origin stories one that involved Moses, and one that involved the three patriarchs. And that it wasn't until after the fall of the northern kingdom that the idea of monotheism really took off, when most of the northerners fled south and joined the kingdom of Judah to create a unified state and a unified religion. This religion, which can be called First Temple Judaism, was short-lived because not too long after it got going, the first temple was destroyed, and the elite were exiled to Babylon. But, as you're hopefully aware of by this point, the Jews were eventually allowed by the Persians to return and rebuild their temple. It is probably sometime during this period that the two origin stories were combined for the first time, and that the final version of the Torah was compiled, creating a new religion that could be called Second Temple Judaism. However, over the next several hundred years, particularly by the time that the Persians were replaced by the Greeks, several different groups emerged within Second Temple Judaism, each with their own slightly different understanding of the religion. The three main groups were the Pharisees, who were mainly scribes and teachers, the Sadducees, who were the priests, and the Essenes, who were the most mystical of the three. When the Second Temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 CE, the Sadducees basically 
disappeared because there was no longer a temple for them to use. At this point, the very bookish Pharisees ended up redefining Judaism, and it eventually evolved into rabbinical Judaism, which is the type of Judaism that exists to this day. The Essenes are the group that we know the least about. They may or may not have been the ones responsible for making the Dead Sea Scrolls. These days, there's some debate about that. However, one idea is that they were the ones who were the most interested in stuff like angels and demons and a future messiah. Because of this, some scholars have put forward the idea that the Essenes might have had a strong influence on the development of Christianity. So by the time that the biblical canon was finalized, which was sometime after 70 CE, Second Temple Judaism no longer existed, and instead there were two main descendants left behind. On one hand, there was Rabbinical Judaism, and on the other hand, early Christianity. The rabbis, as the direct descendants of the Pharisees, were more concerned with the Torah, and less concerned with later writings, such as the Book of Enoch. In fact, the early rabbis interpreted Genesis 6 very differently than the way that the Book of Enoch does. They taught that the phrase, the sons of God, which can also be translated as the sons of the powerful ones, did not refer to spiritual beings at all, but rather referred to some kind of noble line of humans that became corrupt. So the rabbis did not include Enoch in the Jewish Tanakh. The early Christians, on the other hand, seemed to hold on to the book of Enoch a little longer. For example, third century church fathers such as Tertullian and Origen both For example, third-century church fathers such as Tertullian and Origen both considered it to be divinely inspired. However, in 382 CE at the Council of Rome, it did not make the final cut when the contents of the Catholic Bible were finally set in stone. Of course, it did remain in the Ethiopian Bible, which is why it did make it into this video. So, the New Testament doesn't tell the story of Jesus only once. It tells it four times. Basically, that's what the Gospels are. They are four slightly different versions of the same story. A story about a guy named Jesus who, among other things, was a teacher, a healer, and, according to Christians, God in the flesh. So, the four Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are placed in this order because, originally, that was the order in which they were thought to have been written. However, as we'll soon see, we now know that this probably was not the order in which they were written. One thing that is clear about the Gospels is that one of them is very different from the others. That's the Gospel of John. The other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic meaning seen together. Although they have some differences, they also share a lot in common. If you think of each gospel as being like 
four essays written by four different students, any teacher would immediately come to the conclusion that three out of the four students cheated. Either somebody copied from somebody, or they all worked together, or they all downloaded the same essay off the internet and made a few changes, hoping the teacher wouldn't notice. The puzzle over who copied who has intrigued scholars ever since the Gospels were written. In academic circles, it is known as the synoptic problem, and there have been a lot of different theories put forward about how to solve the mystery. I'm going to look at three of them. However, before I do that, let me quickly talk about the authors themselves. Contrary to popular belief, there are actually no author names attached to any of the four Gospels. The attributions to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are simply based on tradition. Two of the names, Matthew and John, are names belonging to the list of Jesus' 12 disciples. Mark is thought to have been an assistant to Peter, the leader of the 12 disciples. And Luke is thought to have been an assistant to Paul, arguably the most important figure in the development of early Christianity. So in other words, all four Gospels have strong associations with very important early Christian figures. But did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually write the Gospels that are attributed to them? Well, according to most conservative Christian scholars, the answer is yes. However, according to most critical scholars, the answer is probably not. Either way, I think it's useful to think of each author as representing more of a community or tradition rather than a single author. We saw something similar when we looked at the Old Testament prophets. For example, the book of Ezekiel was probably not actually written by Ezekiel. However, it was probably written by a member of a school of thought that originated with a man named Ezekiel. In a similar manner, even if the Gospel of Matthew wasn't actually written by Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, it was likely written by an author who belonged to some sort of community that had a connection to Matthew. So with that said, let's now look at three possible solutions to the synoptic problem. I'll start with the one that is by far the most accepted solution these days. It is called the two-source hypothesis. This hypothesis is based on the idea that Mark was written first, and that both Matthew and Luke used Mark as a source. However, it also introduces the idea of a second source, which was available to both Matthew and Luke, but not to Mark. This second source is called Q, but unfortunately, it no longer exists. The idea is that Q was simply a collection of short sayings attributed to Jesus. Some of the reasons why most scholars believe that Mark was written first include the fact that it is the shortest of the three synoptics, with very little material that is not found in the other two, as well as the fact that it uses grammar that is less refined, and a theology that is more primitive. So the basic idea is that both Matthew and Luke took what they found in Mark and attempted to improve on it, both by adding more content and by tidying up the language. The second most popular solution is generally known as the Griesbach hypothesis, named after a German scholar who wrote about it almost 250 years ago. 
However, although this hypothesis is an older one, it's actually seeing kind of a rebirth these days. It argues that Matthew was written first and that Luke was written second, using Matthew as a source, meaning that Mark was actually written last. The idea is that Matthew wrote his gospel at a time when the Christian church was primarily still comprised of Jews, that Luke wrote his gospel after Paul started to spread Christianity to the Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, and that Mark wrote his gospel as a way to summarize the previous two and to put Peter's stamp of approval on both of them. Now, it is in fact true that Matthew is the most Jewishy gospel of the three, and that Luke is the most Gentile-focused. In fact, if we go by tradition, Luke is the only author in the entire Bible, both old and new, that was not Jewish. Tradition holds that he was Greek, and that he was a medical doctor by profession. However, according to critical scholarship, Luke may have simply been a Hellenized Jew. But the main problem with the Griesbach hypothesis concerns Mark. If Mark wrote last and had Matthew and Luke as references, why did he leave out key events, such as the birth story and the post-resurrection appearances? Note that the oldest manuscripts of Mark end with chapter 16, verse 8, in which three women discover the empty tomb and simply run away, afraid. Almost all scholars agree that verses 9 to 19 were added much later. The last solution we're going to look at is a bit of a wild card. It's the most cutting-edge solution and therefore does not currently have widespread acceptance. It's called the Q plus Papias hypothesis and was put forward by a professor named Dennis McDonald. McDonald is also known for putting forward the idea that the Gospel of Mark was modeled on the works of Homer. Like the two-source solution, this hypothesis holds that Q and Mark were written first. However, it differs in that it posits that Q was written before Mark and that Mark had access to it. This is why we get the term Q+. McDonald adds more material to the hypothetical Q document, material which otherwise is usually assigned to Mark. Next comes Matthew, who had access to both Q+, and Mark. And then he adds a document called Papias. Papias was an early bishop who lived from around 60 to 130 CE. We know from later authors that he wrote a text called The Exposition of the Sayings of the Lord. This source is now lost. However, we have quotations from it found in the works of later authors. From these quotations, we know that Papias had access to three earlier sources. MacDonald suggests that these were Q+, Mark, and Matthew. Finally, the last synoptic author to write was Luke. Luke presumably would have had access to all four previous works. Okay, so that covers the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'll place them on a timeline in a bit, but first, let's talk about John and Acts. 
John, of course, is the fourth gospel. But like I said earlier, it has very little in common with the other three. It's almost as if John is telling a completely different story. He adds lots of events that aren't mentioned in the other three and leaves out lots of events that are. And whereas the synoptic gospels have Jesus giving a lot of short sayings, John more often has him giving longer, more complex speeches. One thing that most scholars agree on is that John's gospel is more theological, whereas the other three are more straightforward narratives. What do I mean when I say theological? I should probably elaborate because I've used the word several times in my various Bible videos, but have never really explained to myself. For example, I keep repeating that we have to remember that the Bible was written in order to make theological points, not to simply record history. You see, nowadays we tend to divide all writing into two categories. It's either fiction or nonfiction. But ancient people didn't do this. Instead, they mixed the two, especially when talking about topics that are difficult to explain, like, you know, anything to do with God or theology. The word theology simply means the study of God. For example, the authors of the Jewish Bible held certain beliefs about God that they wanted to express, such as the idea that there is only one God and that God exists outside of the natural world. When they wrote, they weren't simply saying, this happened, and then this happened, and then this, and so forth. Instead, they took people that they thought had existed in the past and made them into literary characters. They embellished the stories that they had heard about them, and sometimes even placed words into their mouths, words that expressed the ideas that they wanted to communicate in the present. In the Jewish Bible, even God is a literary character. This is why God often seems quite different, depending on which particular book you're reading. Does this mean that God doesn't really exist? Well, not necessarily. Personally, I believe in God. Maybe you do too. Maybe you don't. But either way, I think it's important to understand that the God of the Bible isn't necessarily the God of reality. Rather, the God of the Bible is simply various authors' portrayal of God. Whether you believe that portrayal is accurate, inaccurate, or somewhere in between, that's up to you. And I think the same goes for the character of Jesus, especially in the case of John's Gospel. Obviously, many Christians believe that Jesus said every single word that the Gospels say he said. But it's also possible that the Gospel writers took some artistic liberties, that they crafted their stories in a way so that they could make a point about who they thought Jesus was, rather than simply record, he did this, and then he did that, and so forth. For example, Mark has Jesus hanging on the cross in pain, shouting as he dies, whereas John has him calmly making deep statements and then dying in a very serene way. Okay, one more thing about the Gospel of John. According to some scholars, John has at least two layers. Instead of using the Q source, which was simply a list of Jesus' short sayings, it seems that John instead may have used a now-lost source known as the Signs Gospel. 
a text that listed the various miracles that Jesus was said to have performed. It's possible that John, or more likely a follower of John, used the signs gospel as a starting point and then worked the rest of the material around it. Next up is the Book of Acts, also known as the Acts of the Apostles. Whereas the Gospels tell the story of Jesus up until his death and resurrection, Acts tells us the story of what his disciples, aka the Apostles, did after he was gone. In other words, it tells the story of how the Christian Church came to exist. And we happen to know who wrote it. Well, kind of. The person who wrote the book of Acts is the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. So traditionally, that would be Luke the physician. In other words, Luke Acts is actually a two-part work that has been unfortunately split up. A better way to arrange the first five books of the New Testament might be to order them like this. First, Mark, then Matthew, then Luke Acts, then John. Let's now bring up a timeline. Every line on this chart represents a block of 10 years. Let's first add the lifetime of Jesus. There are various theories out there about when exactly Jesus was born, when exactly he died, and even whether or not he existed in the first place. The mainstream position is that he did in fact exist, and the most commonly used dates for his lifespan are 4 BCE to 30 CE. This means that in the year 100 CE, there were still people alive who would have known Jesus. Now, other than Jesus himself, the most important person when it comes to the development of early Christianity is Paul. Paul was not one of Jesus's disciples when Jesus was still alive. Instead, he became a follower a few years after Jesus died somewhere between 34 and 37 CE. Although Paul himself was a Jew, he was the person primarily responsible for taking Christianity from being a minor sect of Judaism and making it into a brand new religion that consisted mostly of non-Jews. Traditionally, Paul is said to have lived up until the reign of Emperor Nero, and was killed sometime between 64 and 68 CE. We'll be talking about Paul more in the next episode, when we delve into the epistles. But for now, I thought it would be useful to put him on the chart for reference. Now,
most important date for understanding the development of both Judaism and Christianity is the year 70 CE. I mentioned that date in last week's video as the date for when the Second Temple was destroyed. Prior to this pivotal event, Judaism was a diverse religion with many different branches, one of which was early Christianity. But the destruction of the Temple forced Judaism to evolve. Personally, I like to think of 70 CE as the date for which both Christianity and Rabbinical Judaism were truly born. Both religions developed as a way to deal with the loss of the Temple. On one hand, the rabbis shifted the focus onto studying the Torah and meeting in synagogues for prayer, whereas on the other hand, the Christians shifted the focus onto the person of Jesus and on seeing his death as the replacement for the earlier temple sacrifices. All three of the synoptic gospels reference the destruction of the temple. Unless one interprets these as being real prophecies, which many Christians do, this means that the earliest date for any of the synoptic gospels is 70 CE. Most scholars do place Mark somewhere just shortly after 70 CE, and then Matthew and Luke Acts somewhere around 10 years later. Q, if it did exist, would be placed before 70 CE, perhaps as early as the year 40. John, on the other hand, is usually placed last, around the year 100 CE. So, even though the Gospels may not have been written by the individuals they are now named after, they were all likely written during a time when people who had known Jesus were still alive. Which means, even if you're like me and don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, the Gospels are still fairly good sources for gathering some basic information about his life. Now, before I go, I want to address one more topic. Since I won't be doing a separate episode on the New Testament Apocrypha, I thought I'd bring up the most famous gospel that didn't make the final cut, the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is one of many other non-canonical gospels that still exist. That's right, we have dozens of other gospels beyond just the four that made it into the New Testament. Most of these are thought to have been written much later. However, the Gospel of Thomas is the exception to this rule. According to some scholars, it may have been written around the same time as the main four. The other interesting thing about the Gospel of Thomas is that it was lost to time until a manuscript of it was found in 1945. You can imagine how excited biblical scholars were when this happened. At first, many thought it might be the Q source that had supposedly gone missing. This is because Thomas is primarily a collection of short sayings attributed to Jesus. However, when it was compared to the synoptics, it became clear that Thomas was not Q. It's similar, but it's obvious from the text that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did not use the Gospel of Thomas when writing their own Gospels. So who wrote this quote-unquote fifth gospel, and how does it relate to the other four? 
Well, like I mentioned earlier, it is best to think of the Gospels as being the products of certain camps or communities rather than the works of single authors. So, for example, some scholars posit the existence of a Thomasine community and a Johannine community within early Christianity. The followers of Thomas saw the resurrection as being more of an act of spiritual enlightenment, whereas the followers of John saw it as being more of a factual, bodily resurrection. This would explain why John's Gospel paints the Thomas character as being the infamous Doubting Thomas, which just goes to show there was much disagreement among early Christians on how to understand Jesus. In fact, even the most conservative Christian scholars will admit that it took hundreds of years before all the various so-called heresies were stamped out, and the more standard form of Christianity that we know today took hold. The fact that early on there was not a single Christianity, but rather many Christianities, is an important point that we will return to when we take a look at the Quran. So we're going to start with the nine letters written by Paul to specific churches. All nine of these letters start with the exact same word, Paul. Nowadays, when a person writes a letter, they usually start with dear so-and-so. In other words, they start with the recipient's name. However, when it comes to the New Testament epistles, we get the opposite. The letters always start with the sender's name first, then the recipient, and then usually some kind of personal greeting. Let's first take a look at a map to see the locations where each of these letters were sent. Romans, of course, was sent to Rome which is the most familiar location on the list. First and second Corinthians were sent to Corinth, Corinth being one of the major cities in Greece. Galatians was sent to Galatia. Galatia is the only place name on this list that is not a city. It refers to an entire region located right in the middle of Anatolia, what is today Turkey. We then get Ephesians, which was sent to the city of Ephesus on the coast of Anatolia. Next, Philippians, sent to Philippi, a city in ancient Macedonia, named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip. Colossians was sent to the city of Colossae, yet another city in Anatolia. Finally, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians were sent to Thessaloniki, which is in the same region as Philippi. Now, this series is called Who Wrote the Bible? So, the main question we need to answer is, did Paul actually write these letters? As we've seen throughout this series, the person who is claimed in the text, or by tradition, to be the author, is actually, usually, not the author. For example, according to most modern scholars, Moses did not actually write the five books of Moses. Solomon did not write the Song of Solomon. And Matthew probably didn't even write the Gospel of Matthew. It may therefore surprise you when I say that, according to most scholars, even the most secular critical ones, Paul did in fact write most of these letters. There is some disagreement over Ephesians, Colossians, and 2 Thessalonians, but the rest, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, and 1st Thessalonians, are pretty much 
universally recognized as being the genuine works of Paul. How do scholars make distinctions like this? Well, it mostly boils down to style. The six epistles thought to be genuine all share a very similar writing style, similar vocabulary, similar grammar, and similar ideas. The other three stand out as being different. Now, this could indicate that Paul simply used an assistant to write these letters, or that he wrote them at a later date, or when he was in a very different mood. Like I say, scholars are divided on this. But for those who have doubts, these three are considered pseudepigrapha, meaning that they were probably written several decades after Paul's death by someone pretending to be Paul. As we've seen in previous episodes, it was not uncommon in ancient times for writers to do something like this. In the last episode, I used this timeline. As I mentioned then, Paul was not actually a follower of Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. He became a Christian after Jesus' death, sometime in the 30s CE. And he lived up until the 60s when he was killed during the reign of Emperor Nero. The genuine Pauline epistles can therefore all be placed within the range of his ministry. Generally, Galatians and 1 Thessalonians are thought to have been the earliest letters, both dating to around the year 50, with Romans and the two Corinthians being written sometime during the late 50s, and Philippians coming last, usually being placed in the early 60s. The other letters, if they are indeed pseudepigrapha, can probably be placed around the end of the first century, or early in the second century. Which means that Galatians and 1 Thessalonians are the two earliest books in the entire New Testament, and that all of the genuine Pauline epistles were written prior to the four Gospels which is an important point when it comes to the study of the historical Jesus. Skeptics have pointed out the fact that the Pauline epistles contain zero references to biographical details about the life of Jesus, other than his death and supposed resurrection. For example, Paul never mentions Mary or any of Jesus' other family members, not even in passing. He also never mentions Bethlehem, or Nazareth, nor does he ever refer to even a single one of Jesus' parables, sermons, exorcisms, healings, or other miracles. This is a bit strange, and skeptics use it to argue that Jesus was primarily a legendary figure, if not an entirely fictional one. However, believers counter these arguments with the fact that Paul's letters were, well, letters, and the purpose of the letters were to explain theology, not to list facts about Jesus, facts that the recipients of the letters would already have known. Let's now move on to the four letters that Paul is said to have written to individual people. These are called the pastoral epistles, and when it comes to the pastoral epistles, only one is universally recognized as being genuine. That one is Philemon. Again, this mostly boils down to style. Philemon very much matches the style of the six letters we've already labeled as genuine. So that brings us to a total of seven genuine Pauline epistles. At least 
50% of biblical scholars feel that the other three pastoral epistles, Titus and the two Timothys, are pseudepigrapha, which, again, would place them much later on the timeline. Which brings us to Hebrews. Virtually no biblical scholar today attributes this one to Paul, even in the most conservative circles. In fact, this letter doesn't even begin with the usual Paul at the top. No sender is mentioned, nor any recipient, although at the end it says those from Italy send their greetings. But the book is called Hebrews because it is thought that it was sent to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So this is yet another book for the anonymous category. However, there have been numerous hypotheses put forward over the years as to who the author might be. One hypothesis that I find quite interesting is that it was written by a woman named Priscilla. If true, this would be very notable. You probably noticed that, so far, it seems that the Bible was written entirely by men, which is not too surprising considering that as a whole, female authors were pretty rare in the ancient world. However, before we talk about Priscilla, I should point out that there is also the possibility that some female authors contributed toward the Tanakh, or Old Testament. As we saw in previous episodes, many of the books in that part of the Bible are actually anonymous and consist of several different texts combined together. It is therefore possible, if not probable, that at least one psalm or other piece of text was written by an anonymous woman. In fact, I've even seen one scholar claim that the J source for the Torah might have had a female author. But back to Priscilla. Priscilla and her husband Aquila are mentioned six times in the New Testament as being early Christian leaders and good friends of Paul. In fact, it seems that Priscilla, in particular, might have held some kind of prominent rank in the early church. It seems that early on, men and women were treated equally in Christian circles, and only later did the church become more patriarchal. If Hebrews was written by a woman, it might explain why it eventually ended up being recorded as being anonymous. Anyway, like I said, this is just a hypothesis, and is by no means the mainstream position. All that we really know is that Hebrews is written in very polished Greek, and that it is the most carefully composed and eloquent book in the entire New Testament. This all makes it very hard to date, so I'm simply going to go with the standard estimate, which is somewhere between 70 and 100. Okay, that brings us to the seven general epistles. The first one is attributed to someone named James, usually thought to be James, the brother of Jesus, and the initial leader of the church in Jerusalem. For a discussion of the various individuals in the New Testament named James, of which there were several, check out the video that we did on the family tree of Jesus. The Epistle of James is actually one of the books that almost didn't make it into the New Testament. For this and other reasons, most scholars feel that this is probably yet another example of pseudepigrapha. In other words, it was either written by someone pretending to be James, the brother of Jesus, or by some less important guy who happened to be named James. 
Likewise, 1st and 2nd Peter were probably not written by Peter, the leader of the Twelve Apostles. In fact, based on the styles used, the two epistles attributed to Peter were probably written by two different people. And in the case of 2nd Peter, it looks like the author may have copied a bit from Jude, who we'll get to in a second. One of the arguments against authorship by Peter is the fairly safe assumption that Peter was an illiterate fisherman. Now, the counter-argument is that Peter could have learned to write later on, or that he could have used a secretary. However, Peter's writing skills are not the only problem. The letters simply do not come across as being written by someone who knew Jesus personally, which Peter did. They come across as being written by people who were highly learned with expert-level knowledge of the Septuagint and other ancient writings. Next up is the three letters attributed to John, traditionally thought to be the same person who wrote the Gospel of John. But unlike all the other epistles, except for Hebrews, these three letters don't actually start with the name of the sender, although letters two and three do start with the words the Elder. As I mentioned in the episode on the Gospels, the Apostle John probably didn't write the Gospel of John. However, it is likely that whoever did write the Gospel of John also wrote the three epistles of John. The styles are similar enough to assume a single author for all four works, so probably someone that was a member of the hypothetical Johannine community. The last epistle is the epistle of Jude, said in the text itself to be the brother of James. Traditionally, this would mean that Jude was also the brother of Jesus. Like the epistle of James, the epistle of Jude was one of those books that almost didn't make the cut. Therefore, the assumption is that it is probably pseudepigrapha, which means that, according to most scholars, none of the general epistles are genuine letters from the people who were said to have written them. This is in contrast to the Pauline epistles, seven of which, as we have seen, are in fact genuine. So all of the general epistles can probably be placed on the timeline somewhere late in the first century or early second. Now, before I go, I want to mention one more epistle that almost made it into the New Testament was eventually cut out. The Epistle of Barnabas. Barnabas was a traveling companion of Paul, but as you can probably guess, the Epistle of Barnabas was in all likelihood not written by the real Barnabas. It's yet another example of pseudepigrapha. Now, why other pseudepigrapha made it into the New Testament, but this one did not, is uncertain. For the first few centuries of the Common Era, it was in fact included alongside other books like James and Jude, but like I say, eventually it was dropped. Two other books that were dropped are The Shepherd of Hermas and The Didache. Neither are epistles, but I thought they were worth mentioning since I won't be doing a separate episode on the New Testament Apocrypha. The Shepherd of Hermas is comprised of various visions, commandments, and proverbs, whereas the Didache is kind of like an early catechism, a catechism being a summary of Christian doctrine, 
used for teaching. One of the themes we've seen throughout this series is the fact that sometimes a book in the Bible is set during one period, but is really making a statement about another period. For example, the book of Ruth is set during the period of the judges and appears to be about two of King David's ancestors. However, in reality, what it's really talking about is the issue of whether or not Jews should marry non-Jews, something that was a hot topic during the much later Persian period, which is when the book was actually written. This is something we frequently see happen in modern media as well. Take, for example, the 1970s TV show MASH. That show was set during the Korean War, but was obviously an allegory about the later Vietnam War. Well, Daniel is another one of these cases. Although the book is primarily set during the Babylonian period, what it's really talking about is the late Hellenistic period, which was when the Seleucid king, Antiochus IV, was persecuting the Jews. This is something I'd like you to keep in mind as we explore some of its content. But before we do that, I need to explain two terms, prophecy and apocalypse. Both are words that relate to the books of Daniel and Revelation. When people hear the word prophecy, what they usually think of is a prediction about the future. But in ancient Judaism, that's not what prophecy meant. A prophecy was simply a warning. For example, prophets would say, look, if you don't change your wicked ways, such and such a bad thing is going to happen. But if you obey God, such and such a good thing is going to happen. In other words, the future was not set in stone. So the main point of prophecy, like other types of religious writings, was simply to convince people to change their behavior in the present. Likewise, when people hear the word apocalypse, they also tend to think about the future, usually an awful future event in which the entire world comes to an end. However, the Greek word apocalypsis simply meant an uncovering of something hidden. So again, apocalyptic literature was more about the present, whenever it was written, than it was about the future. You see, here's what happened. Initially, the Jewish prophets were like, see all this bad stuff happening? Well, that's because you sinned. If you shape up, though, things will get better. But unfortunately, things never did get better. The Jews continued to be ruled by foreign powers. First, the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Ptolemies, then the Seleucids. So the prophets decided to take a different tack. What they now said was, see all this bad stuff happening? That's because, on another level, there's a hidden war between good and evil that's happening. But don't worry, hold on tight, because good will eventually win. So, apocalyptic literature was an attempt to uncover and reveal a hidden world. It was an attempt to encourage people and to let them know that God was somehow still in control, even when it seemed that he was not. What apocalyptic literature was not trying to do was to provide an exact blueprint for the future. So now that we know why these books were written, let's see if some of the famous passages from them make more sense. 
In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in which he sees a statue with a head of gold, arms of silver, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of part iron, part clay. Growing up, I was taught that this statue was a blueprint for the future, given to Daniel during the Babylonian period. I was told that the head represented Babylon, the arms represented Persia, the thighs represented Greece, and the legs represented Rome, with the ten toes representing various medieval and modern powers from Europe, the last one being the Antichrist, who was about to appear. However, if we accept the viewpoint that Daniel was actually written by an anonymous author during the Greek period, a different interpretation makes more sense. Instead of describing the future, the author was actually describing the past up until the time of writing. Understood this way, the head represents Babylon, the arms represent the Medes, the thighs represent Persia, and the two legs represent the two Greek kingdoms, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, with the ten toes representing the ten Hellenistic rulers that had ruled Judea up until that point. At the end of the dream, a large rock from heaven destroys the statue, and God establishes his own kingdom. What the author of Daniel was hoping for was not some future kingdom, hundreds or thousands of years in the future, but for an independent Judean kingdom to be established in the present, something that did in fact happen around that time, thanks to the Maccabees. We get a similar prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. This time, Daniel is the one who has the dream. In his dream, he sees a series of four creatures rising out of the sea. A lion, a bear, a four-headed leopard, and an unknown beast with ten horns. These paintings are actually the ones that were produced by my cult, and therefore I saw them quite a bit as a child. Again, I was taught that they represented four kingdoms, and that those four kingdoms were Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Interestingly, it was all this talk about ancient civilizations during my childhood that got me interested in history. Anyway, in the dream, Daniel goes on to see a little horn appear on the fourth beast that has eyes like a man and a mouth that speaks arrogantly. You can see this strange little horn quite clearly in this medieval depiction of the fourth beast. According to my cult, it represented the future Antichrist, who, again, was about to appear any day now. But as you might have guessed, there is another way to understand the dream, one that is based on history as opposed to future predictions. Like with the statue, it's more likely that the four beasts were originally meant to represent the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, and the Greeks. The Romans weren't depicted because the Roman Empire simply didn't exist yet. As for the little horn, it was almost certainly a reference to Antiochus IV, the Seleucid king who was ruling when the book of Daniel was being written. Finally, I want to address Daniel chapter 9, which is one of the most argued about chapters in the entire Bible. Here we find what's called the 70 Weeks Prophecy. It's actually a great example of how prophetic ideas were often changed or updated over time. 
The chapter begins with Daniel reading the words of an earlier prophet, the prophet Jeremiah. And according to Jeremiah, Judah was going to be under the control of Babylon for 70 years. Now, from the perspective of whoever wrote Daniel, those 70 years never really came to an end because although the Jews were able to return to their land, they remained under the control of foreign powers. First it was Babylon, then Persia, then the Ptolemies, then the Seleucids. So what the author of Daniel decided to do was to put a new spin on Jeremiah's words. Instead of 70 years, it was going to be 70 weeks of years, meaning 70 times 7, or 490. But according to the next few verses, those 490 years would be divided into three parts. First, there's a period of 7 weeks. 7 times 7 equals 49. Then there's a period of 62 weeks. 62 times 7 equals 434. Finally, there's one remaining week, which equals 7 years. And according to the book of Daniel, something major was going to happen halfway through that last week. In other words, after three and a half years. Now, according to most Christians, the 70 weeks prophecy is about Jesus. The most commonly used argument is that the 49 years represents the time between 457 BCE and 408 BCE, which, according to some timelines, is when Ezra was given the go-ahead to rebuild the temple. The 434 years then represents the time between 408 BCE and 26 CE, 26 CE being the approximate date for when Jesus began his ministry. Finally, in the spring of 30 CE, which would have been three and a half years after Jesus started his ministry, Jesus was killed. Thus, according to Christians, the big event prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 was the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to flat out say that this interpretation is wrong. If you're a Christian, I understand that seeing certain things in the Jewish Bible as pointing toward Jesus is an important part of your faith. However, I am not a Christian. So for those who might be wondering how Jews view this passage or how this passage can be understood from a strictly historical point of view, I'm going to give you an alternative interpretation. And again, it all hinges on the realization that the book of Daniel was written in the late Hellenistic period, just prior to the Maccabean Revolt, and that the author was building upon an earlier prophecy, the one made by Jeremiah. So let's start there. In Jeremiah 25, verse 1, it says, The word which came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah, which was the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He then goes on to give a bunch of details, the most important of which is given in verse 11. This whole land shall be a desolate ruin, and those nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So this is great because 
Jeremiah's prophecy begins with some very clear reference points. He says he's speaking in the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which we know was 605 BCE. So 605 BCE is the starting date for Jeremiah's 70 years, and hence also the starting date for Daniel's 490 years. Let's talk about the seven weeks first. 49 years after 605 BCE would be 556 BCE. Interestingly, something important did happen around this time. You see, Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 and was succeeded by his son, Amul Marduk. At some point during Amul Marduk's reign, he released Jehoiakim from prison. Jehoiakim, called the Anointed One in Daniel, was the last independent king of Judah. Jehoiakim's descendants would go on to serve as exilarchs of the Jewish people. Let's now talk about the 62 weeks, or 434 years. Most people assume that the 434 years should come after the 49 years. However, there is nothing in the original Hebrew that requires it to be understood this way. In other words, it could also mean 434 years from the year 605 BCE. This would bring us to the year 171 BCE, which was a very important year indeed. This was the year that the high priest Onias III was executed by Antiochus IV. Onias III was seen as being the last legitimate priest from the original line of high priests. A few years before his execution, Onias had been replaced by his brother Jason, and then by a man named Menelaus, both of whom bribed Antiochus in order to get the position. So this fits with Daniel's description of the Anointed One disappearing around this time. What about the three and a half years then? Well, approximately three and a half years after the death of Onias, another major event occurred. In the year 167 BCE, Antiochus IV put a stop to the Jewish sacrifices at the temple and instead sacrificed a pig to Zeus. For Jews at the time, nothing could be more horrible than that. Here's how Daniel described it. At the corner of the altar will be an appalling abomination. I think it's far more likely that the abomination referred to in Daniel chapter 9 is the thing that Antiochus IV did right around the time that the book of Daniel was written than it is a reference to the death of Jesus. Okay, let's now move on to the book of Revelation. In the first chapter, the author names himself as John and states that he is writing from the island of Patmos, where he has been imprisoned for being a Christian. This allows us to date the book to either the 60s CE or the 90s CE, as these are the first two periods in which Christians were persecuted. First under Emperor Nero, and then second under Emperor Domitian. Most scholars lean toward a date of around 95 CE, making Revelation one of the last books of the New Testament to be written. In addition to this, most scholars feel that the John that wrote Revelation is not the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. 
and the three epistles of John. But either way, Revelation was written at least 230 years after the book of Daniel, and a lot had happened in those 230 years, the most notable thing being the rise of the Roman Empire, which went on to conquer the Hellenistic kingdoms, as well as the kingdom of Judea. But another way to look at it is that not much had changed at all. The Jews were still being ruled by a foreign power. It's just that the foreign power was now Rome. This is made clear in Revelation chapter 13, where John describes a beast rising from the sea. He describes this beast as being part lion, part bear, and part leopard, having seven heads and ten horns. This is obviously referring back to the four beasts from the book of Daniel. But here he combines the four beasts into a single creature, basically saying that Rome is the successor to the previous four kingdoms and is as bad as all the previous four combined. Again, this image is the exact one that was used by my cult, the Worldwide Church of God, in order to scare people into obedience. According to my cult, the ten horns represented ten reincarnations of the Roman Empire with the final one about to appear any day now, ushering in the end of the world. However, like I said earlier, apocalyptic literature wasn't actually about providing a blueprint for the far future. It was about what was happening in the present. And when John was writing Revelation, the present reality consisted of Rome persecuting Jews and Christians. John was trying to peel back the layers of what was happening to reveal a hidden cosmic battle that he claimed God would eventually win. We can see further evidence for this in verse 18, where he mentions one of the most famous numbers in the entire Bible. 666. Over the centuries, there have been a lot of theories about the meaning of this number, most of which are just plain crazy. But one theory that does make sense is that the number was a code word for Nero the first Roman emperor to persecute Christians. If you switch the Greek consonants with Hebrew consonants and add up the numbers associated with each letter, you get 666. Or alternatively, if you switch the Latin consonants with Hebrew consonants, you get 616, which some scholars argue is the more accurate translation of the number. There are two other famous passages from Revelation that I want to address. The first is in chapter 4, where John describes God sitting on his throne. In verse 7, he describes four living creatures that sit around the throne. These are different from the four creatures we discussed earlier. This time, they look like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. And instead of being based on something from the book of Daniel, these creatures are based on a passage from Ezekiel, where they are portrayed as being angels. So this is yet another example of one prophetic book putting a new spin on an older prophetic book. In Christian tradition, the four living creatures are usually thought as representing the four gospel writers, something that can be seen in lots of Christian artwork throughout the centuries. Remember the stained glass images I used in the Gospels episode? Well, check out the full version of those images. Here you can see that Mark was associated with the lion, Luke with the ox, Matthew with 
the human and John with the eagle. Okay, the last thing I want to talk about are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These famous characters show up in Revelation chapter 6. So again, we get a series of four creatures, but this time all four are horses, but differently colored horses. White, red, black, and pale. And as you might have guessed, differently colored horses do show up in previous prophetic books. They show up in both Ezekiel and Zechariah and are quite clearly meant to represent punishments sent by God. There have been all kinds of theories about what exactly the four horsemen in Revelation represent, with war, famine, and disease being common suggestions. Once again, the imagery has inspired lots of art over the centuries. But as with everything else we've discussed, in my view, the imagery is not about future predictions, but rather about present realities at the time of writing. After all, war, famine, and disease were all things that were present during Roman times. Okay, so that concludes this introduction to the Bible. As a summary of what we've gone through, I've prepared this timeline of the Bible, which isn't a timeline of the events described in the Bible, but rather a timeline of the Bible itself. It shows approximately when each book was written and how the various books were combined together to produce the Bible as we know it today. If you want to get a copy of the chart as a poster, it's available on our website, usefulcharts.com. Thanks for watching.